Welcome back to Mastering Retail, a podcast masterclass brought to you by Flywheel Digital. This is the very first episode of an entire season of the podcast covering digital commerce in the Asia Pacific region. Remember how we've done deep dive seasons on Amazon, Walmart, and Instacart? Well, hold on tight because this season covers six different topics in the e-commerce masterclass style, focusing on each specific APAC region, its key marketplaces, and our favorites, of course, the elements of retail and media that coexist to form our winning concept of Metail. My name is Emma Irwin, and if you are new here, I'm a senior editor and specialist at Flywheel Digital. In our first episode here, we're going to go through an overview of Asia Pacific, how we as Flywheel Digital operate in the region and why, why the region is so important for international brands to understand, and some of the behavioral differences of consumers in the East versus the West. We'll meet our guests in a second, don't worry. But before we do that, let me give you just an overview of what's to come in this season. You just heard about this episode, but next you'll learn about the key marketplaces in China, the data infrastructure in China, challenger brands, Southeast Asia, and Japan from a variety of our digital commerce experts in the region. We'll cover Alibaba, Tmall, Taobao, JD.com, Doying, and Pindodo in China, Lazada and Shopee in Southeast Asia, and Amazon in Japan on this journey too. Okay, enough of me. Let's meet our guest for this episode. My name is Dan Cotton, and I'm the EVP for digital commerce in Asia Pacific. So I've been around at Essential for 10 years, and in 2016, embarked on the journey with the leadership team in the UK and the US to build a digital commerce presence in Asia Pacific. And we specifically wanted to do that by acquiring companies in the region so that we had on the ground experts who really understood customers in these markets, but also the platforms and how to operate there. They created technology and solutions for those customers in these markets. So they were dedicated to the specific ways of working and the, the challenges of businesses here. And finally, we, we built you know, great customer relationships in all of these markets, some of which are very local customers and some of which are the regional uh, hubs of large international companies. And so I set out to build that base for us. And we did that through the acquisition of four companies across the region, three in China and one in Southeast Asia, which has given us more than a thousand employees, hundreds of customers and really, really great building block to continue building out brilliant solutions for customers here. Fun stuff. Okay. Next question for you is, where do you most commonly shop? You're based in Hong Kong. So what is your go-to for shopping online? I'm a bit of a fashion geek. In a previous life, I, I ran one of Essential's other companies in Asia Pacific, WGSM, which is the world's largest style and trend forecasting company. So I'm a bit of a fashion nut but I wear a kind of uniform. So I tend to shop at Farfetch and Mr. Porter and Matches Fashion and Essence and places like that, usually looking for my staple items at a discount. So I kind of wait until they, they hit the sales season and then snap them up. So my latest purchase was from Farfetch. What was it? It was a pack of three t-shirts from Maison Mangella, which I got at 60% off. Solid. All right. Something that we ask everyone is something that's on your digital wish list, which just means it's something that sits in your cart forever, but you won't actually purchase and why. But we'll come back to it at the end of the conversation to kind of round it out. Sure. All right. Now that we know Dan, we can get into it. 
Seemingly, the best place to start this episode was to ask Dan about the major overarching cultural differences that exist between the East and the West. Because at the end of the day, consumers drive e-commerce and understanding consumers drive sales for a brand. Yeah, I'm going to answer that question just by reminding everybody how big and diverse Asia Pacific is. The easiest way I can do that actually is I'm based in Hong Kong, which is a city at the southern end of China. And I'll just give you some flight times. It's nine hours for me to get to Sydney. It's four hours for me to get to Singapore. It's three and a half hours for me to get to Beijing. And it's six hours for me to get to New Delhi. And it's four hours for me to get to Tokyo. So just to give you a sense here that this is not a small place. And the cultural diversity is also pretty big. We talk about Asia or APAC often because that's how we tend to roll up our businesses for reporting purposes. But Asia is a, you know, a very, very diverse place. Comparing India with South Korea is, you know, that's a, that's a complicated comparison in itself. So I'll unpick the market a little bit for us. We have a set of markets which we might call more mature economies. For example, South Korea, Japan, we'd call those, and Australia and New Zealand, we'd call those more mature economies. And they behave in terms of retail a bit more like mature economies. Uh, we have emerging markets, for example, markets across Southeast Asia, which are typically in rapid growth, but their retail environments are still evolving very rapidly from pretty unsophisticated, unstructured environments to more structured environments. And then we have China, which you know, is like the size of Europe and has hundreds of languages within it but it operates in a kind of federal system with multiple tiers of cities, very large expanses of land, very different demographics within it. And although China classifies itself still as an emerging economy, actually it's pretty mature, but it is very different in the way it operates, partly because of its governmental structure, partly because of how rapidly it has emerged. So over the past 20 years, and I've been in Hong Kong 14 years, right? Over the past 20 years, China has changed immeasurably. The speed of technology embedding in people's lives and in their commerce is incredible to see. And in spite of the fact that it has an aging demographic now, um, it is actually slowing down the growth. I mean, in fact, shrinking, in fact, I think for the first time this year. So in spite of that, it still has incredibly rapid evolution of technology. And that makes it a very, very interesting place for all markets to observe and take part in so that they can experience that quite unique behavior and how it might impact their markets later. How close would you say that China is to becoming a mature economy? Well, I think that depends on who, who you ask and who wants to make the classification and how convenient the answer is. I mean, to, to me, it's a pretty mature economy already if you look at it in terms of its size and if you travel to any of the major cities in China, you know, it, it looks and feels and behaves like a pretty mature economy now. It's interesting to draw parallels between perhaps North America and China, because although these are not sort of universal across Asia Pacific by any means, it is, a, it is a, an indicative parallel for digital commerce and how both platforms and consumers behave differently. And so fundamentally, I think, you know, from a, from a technology standpoint, the platforms in mainland China technology and marketing websites, right? or in fact, their apps, they're barely websites these days, they're nearly all mobile apps. But they all they do is they provide a platform for brands to establish a store, 
and distribute their products and they provide great marketing tools for them to do that. JD.com in China is a little bit more like a retailer. It does own its own stock. It does own its own warehouses. So that's, that would be more similar to Amazon in North America. But in general, we have this sort of setup, which is more like a 3P model where brands tend to set up a store within an online shopping mall and use the marketing tools to drive people to that. So you should consider it more like a 3P model. And that's pretty similar across much of Asia Pacific, in fact. So that's a kind of technology perspective. And, and, and quite specifically, if you look at how that flows into other areas, for example, Southeast Asia, the major platforms that are winning in Southeast Asia are platforms which are invested in by Alibaba and others. And the technology that they sit on is increasingly the same technology. It's just a little bit less evolved. And so you, you can see that the technology is also going to influence how consumer behavior develops in those markets as well. The fundamental difference in consumer behavior is in the, the retail model in the North America, consumers tend to turn up and start in the search box, tend to. And so they look for something. It's a search-based shopping experience. You search, you get some results, you filter your results. You might do some additional research around those, but you're basically filtering down off a search until you get to your purchase. The shopping behavior online in mainland China is one of discovery and entertainment and play. And that's one of the reasons why the Chinese version of TikTok, uh, Douyin, and others like Kuaishou, uh, have done so well in mainland China so fast because they create this experience of discovery. So a consumer can go in, play, discover, get content about products, how they work, engage with other people who are using those products, influencers learn about them, become engaged. And then during the process of that, they may well also chat to customer service agents, get some additional feedback on that product, get other recommendations in the same category they might want to consider. And during this process, which might be a very, for us, a convoluted kind of playful process, but it's not really shopping, they buy along the way. And so there are some very nice diagrams you can look up online which kind of compare the two processes, but the best way I can describe it is you know, the Western methodology of consumers is search-based and in much of Asia Pacific, it's play and discovery with shopping along the way. I'm curious. I've been trying to think about this and I don't have a solid answer, but like, why do you think it's that way? We sound so boring in the West with how we just want to search for something and get it. And then in the East, it's more of like a play and discovery kind of element. Why do you think that is? It's a great question. And I think some of it is to do with the way that online commerce developed as much as it might be to do with different cultures. And you know, if we were to think about the predominant digital commerce platforms in North America, they're retailers. Amazon was a retailer originally and is still a retailer. It has first party. Right? A Walmart is a retailer. The marketplaces that evolved in mainland China were not retailers. They actually set out to attract consumers, to entertain them. And they were battling for consumers' eyeballs and attention before they were battling for their wallet. And in addition, the mobile, so smartphone and mobile penetration was so much faster in mainland China and is across the whole of Asia Pacific pretty much. I can talk about demographics and how that also influences adoption of these things. But, but because of this app-based world, people were in their phones, they were using it as a means of passing the time 
And therefore the experience became more and more engaging and the commerce was built about around that engaging experience. So there are undoubtedly some sort of cultural elements around it too, but I think a lot of it was driven by the kind of principles of the technology, which are different. I mean, other things I think it's worth, it's worth sort of noting around the region, because although China's population is starting to slow in many other areas of you know, emerging economies, Southeast Asia, India being others, you know, being examples, the demographic is young. It's super young, very well educated. And so aside from it being technically very savvy, the rate of adoption of new technologies is super, super fast. And I think that also allows, I guess, innovation to be much faster. So one reason the adoption of social commerce is going to be quicker in these areas is simply because of the penetration and use of mobile smartphones in digital commerce, the youthful demographic, uh, and therefore the appetite just to try new things and, and engage in them. For sure. Do you foresee those specific shopping behaviors of China and the rest of APAC kind of going cross-continental and making their way over to the West? I'm making sure I have to keep East and West straight. It seems really simple, but when you start talking, it's like, uh. <laughs> but do you foresee that kind of those influences coming over here? I'm sitting in New York at the moment, or maybe even the other way around. I think both. We're lucky because we deal with customers who on a, on a global basis and we deal with platform relationships around the world. So we talk to the big e-commerce players all the way around the world. So I do think, you know, the rapid adoption of uh, social commerce in parts of uh, Asia Pacific and how integrated the purchasing has become those social commerce websites, right? So TikTok stores, Douyin stores. I think that will will spill over into other markets. There will be a kind of export of that. And you're going to see it anyway, because increasingly you'll see apps developed you know, by China or by other places in Asia, ranking in the top five or top 10 downloaded apps in the US, as we currently have, which are delivering you know, effectively great e-commerce or social commerce experiences. So I do think that will happen, but it's not gonna happen to the same degree and with the same rate of adoption as it does in Asia markets. And I think that's because we still have you know, predominantly a retail model in North America. And so it's, it's, a, it's a much bigger shift and mindset for people to, to change, but it will happen. I think in addition to that, you know, the business model around social commerce has not played out in Asia Pacific by any means. It certainly hasn't played out in North America. And so brands are still quite rightly figuring out you know, how do they allocate their capital smartly between traditional e-commerce platforms where they got very clear view of the attribution to sale and social commerce platforms where it's way more complex. So I think that, you know, there's, the, there's still quite a lot for us to figure out the roles of these different types of shopping experiences and how they relate to retail media budgets. On top of that, I think other interesting things about the, you know, the, the, the West can learn from the East, certainly as a, as a warning, is the disruption that's happened in the market share of e-commerce platforms in mainland China. Put that in context, when I started my journey in 2016, 2017, Tmall, so Ali, and JD.com had 93% market share of digital commerce in China. Well, now Douyin has 20%. It's a big change. 
it's a really big change in a short period. Now that hasn't played out, hasn't com- finished playing out. And Pindledore didn't exist, just to put that in perspective. So I think you know the rapid shift of of shares and new business models in mainland China is something to watch out for because I do think that disruption has yet to come into the North American European marketplaces, but I think it will. And going the other way because it shouldn't it's not all one way I think. I think areas where Amazon and and Walmart and others really set an amazing example is the way that they've opened up APIs into their data and their systems to enable you know an ecosystem of very high quality service providers to help them develop products and services for brands so that everybody gets to accelerate sales retail media revenues etc and i think that's an area where particularly you know if we if we're looking at the chine chinese and chinese funded platforms in asia pacific and rakuten and in japan they have a very different approach to third parties accessing their data and i think that also to some extent slows up the ability or the desire in some cases for brands to commit more so i do think there's an opportunity there to learn the other way about finding ways for these platforms to find ways to collaborate with service providers more so that we can drive the business further. The final thing I think which is really interesting from my perspective on the east west front is we deal with loads and loads of top quality international brands who are trading in Asia Pacific, loads of them. Uh they've been trading in Asia Pacific for decades and now are very active in digital commerce. What we're now just starting to see just in the past few years is top quality Chinese brands, specifically Chinese. We've had South Korean brands and Japanese brands I think for some time, but we're now starting to see top quality Chinese brands, Anka, Xiaomi, others really developing Oppo, right? Really developing presence in western markets and we're going to see that more and more. It's a very very active outbound community in the 3P model very active increasingly that's going to become first party because the, you know there'll be a set of brands who really build credibility overseas and i think that's also something which is going to be you know, it's it's is one for us all to watch uh, how that happens but my guess is that over the next you know decade or so we'll start to see chinese brands appearing in the top 10 top 20 uh, biggest digital commerce brands in the world few That might be mastering Mitel's longest clip without me interrupting it ever. But how could I? As you travel throughout this entire season, so much of what Dan is talking about will give you all of the context you need to understand why the different marketplaces operate as they do and how western brands need to adapt to excel in these markets. Now, because this episode is called The Future of Digital Commerce in APAC, I had to ask Dan to make a 5-year prediction about where he thinks the industry is going in this region. So I think across the region we're going to see an awful lot of catch up. So in some of the markets which we haven't talked about on this episode so far, like India, some of the specific Southeast Asia markets which are large, large in population, large in GDP, you know, overall GDP, but maybe not that large in uh, e-commerce GDP together Indonesia. We're going to see some of these markets really really play catch up. 
So I think that's, that's going to be a kind of one of the market dynamics that we witness over the coming years. That's going to be important for companies like ours, but also brands, because you don't want to miss that as it's happening. I think we'll see the importance of the China invested technologies really coming through. So we've heard Alibaba's announcement that they're going to separate into six different units. So Ali International will will at some point list separately, which would include Lazada's plans to expand beyond Southeast Asia. But still underpinning that, I think, will be you know, that all the learnings and the technology behind Alibaba in China and Timor. And I just think the amazing resources and thought and expertise that's gone into that over many years to build out those technologies will end up winning and continuing to, to win at win share. So I think that's going to become more and more important. That would be the same for TikTok, of course, which sits on a technology from ByteDance. So I think really doubling down on those technologies, understanding them really well, building the relationships with those platforms and service providers around them will be really important in the future. And then I think, I also think there's going to be a really big shift in Asia around generative AI. I mean, I think that's going to happen globally, but... I think the, the exploration of technology companies and the rapid adoption of different user groups across Asia Pacific, not just in digital commerce, but in general in, in working life, I suspect, you know, latching onto the productivity benefits of generative AI is going to, I think that's going to be just a, a huge wave in Asia Pacific. I don't know that exactly what's going to get impacted, but I think it's going to really impact digital commerce all the way, you know, from managing a store to running media campaigns to managing customer services and for consumers for how they actually find, discover, find and buy products. So I, I think we're going to see a pretty radical shift. We won't have completed it, but we'll be one step along the way of a pretty radical shift driven by generative AI over the next three to five years. And how do brands, manufacturers, let's specify brands, manufacturers from the West, how do they prepare for all of those kinds of shifts? Well, hopefully we'll be able to help them prepare for some of those shifts. But, I, you know, I think when this wave comes, it's going to come really fast. And so for brands operating stores, this is going to be about them ensuring that they have both the right technologies and people in their organizations. As we're seeing for brands in general, right, the shift to the digitization shift is ensuring that they have the right people and skill sets in their organizations to take advantage of the technology, but also to protect against the possible risks around it. I think those two things are going to be really key for brands who want to ride this wave well. So now you've learned about a bit of our history in the region, the digital commerce landscape, the cultural differences and how these impact how brands have to learn to understand the marketplaces and adapt their e-commerce strategies, and Dan's prediction for the future in the region. Which, of course, leads us back to the digital wish list. We're coming back to something on your digital wish list that you just won't purchase and why lives forever in a cart. Oh man, well I, I have a few, as I'm sure many people do, but inevitably, I'm a photographer in my spare time I teach a bit and do portraits for money very nice and I always have an overpriced lens that lust after but don't really need in a shopping basket and sometimes when I'm feeling a bit down I do go there and consider buying it but very very rarely do 
what is the cost of an overpriced lens? Yeah, it's like more than 2,000 US dollars. That's expensive. And that wraps up episode one of our e-commerce in APAC masterclass. I hope that you've learned something and be sure to listen to the following episodes in this season that are going to cover China, Southeast Asia, and Japan in depth and the marketplaces of Alibaba, Tmall, Taobao, JD.com, Doying, Pinnodo, Lazada, Shopee, and our good friend Amazon, all in our classic Mastering Metail style to understand the region, our services, and how brands can find success across all of these different moving pieces. I'm Emma Irwin, and this episode was produced by Klaus Cancel with sound design by Enos Satunj. See you next in the Key Marketplaces in China episode. <laughs>